All right, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read High Rogers by Ben Austin. Dolores Wilson. Most of the high rises at the city's other large public housing developments were already leveled out or in the process of being cleared. It seemed to defy reason that the most infamous of Chicago's gallery-style public housing complexes, the one on the primus real estate, would outlast them all. But the lawsuits at Cabrini-Green had stalled demolition. Now it raced to catch up. Five white high-rises were raised over 13 months starting in December 2005. 1340 North Larrabee, 630 West Evergreen, 714 West Division, 534 West Division, and 624 West Division. Kelvin Cannon had lived in two of the buildings as a child. Then came 1,121 North Larrabee and 1,159-1,161 North Larrabee, two of the Reds, and in the flurry, in 2008, five more of the Red high-rises, a total of 538 apartments. Dolores Wilson watched as one by one the white high-rises around her were crowned with the rooftop billboard that heralded their demise. Hennigan wrecking, we make space. And then she couldn't look away as the space was made. The red cab cranes came in, a wrecking ball the size of an ocean liner's anchor swinging into the top floors, the prefabricated facade crumbling like old chalk. Another crane with steel teeth spat water as it tore into a wall, exposing someone's room behind it. Bit by bit, the buildings disappeared. One apartment, a bank of them, several floors. The sheer towers revealed dozens of brightly painted rooms like a box of pastels. When the letter arrived saying 1230 North Burling would be next, the high rise facing it was in the process of being reduced to a couple of 25 foot mounds of rubble. A group of residents in Dolores' building met in the first floor rec room to decide what to do. One of the elected tenant reps warned everyone about the CHA scare tactics. Kenneth Hammond, a 41 year old lifelong Cabrini resident, had been living in an adjacent high rise and when it was torn down, he'd leap as if from a sinking ship to the Burling building. Hammond had watched as his former neighbors took whatever far-flung addresses the housing agency assigned them. They were made to believe they didn't have a choice, and most of them ended up in neighborhoods that seemed at least as poor and segregated and violent as the homes they'd left. Quote, don't think it's near safe out there as it is in your own community, end quote, Hammond cautioned. Cabrini Green had his problems, of course, but it was better to face those problems in your own home than on someone else's turf. Living at Cabrini, most people have figured out which stores offered credit, what church, social service agencies, community leaders, and neighbors could be counted on in a bind. If someone had trouble with rent, a tow car, or a family member who'd been arrested, she at least knew where to find help. In the private market, you were on your own. Quote, who can you go to? End quote, Hammond said. Quote, once you in these new communities, they're going to shut you out. Only thing, only thing going to tell you, only thing they're going to tell you, man, shorty, go back to where you used to stay. The CHA trying to set us up to fail. End quote. The last thing Dolores wanted to do was move. At 81, after a half century at Cabrini Green, she had her church, her friends, her family, all on the near north side. Her youngest son, Kenny, had passed away a couple of years earlier of pneumonia.
but both of her daughters lived in 1230 North Burling as well. Debbie on the same floor and Cheryl two floors up on the 8th. Dolores appreciated that people wanted to fight to stay. Quote, Carol Steele works her butt off, end quote, she said. Quote, praise the Lord for her. I'm glad she doesn't give up, end quote. But in her conscientious way, Dolores attended the relocation meetings. She filled out the surveys and paperwork and followed up with the case manager. She had zero interest in testing the private market after all her years in public housing. She'd heard about families renting with vouchers who'd been forced to relocate two and three times. She didn't think she could handle one move, let alone more. She walked across the visit street to Parkside of Old Town and submitted an application for a unit. When she visited one of the apartments there and stepped out onto the balcony, she lurched back. The fence between her and a six-flight fall was no more than waist high. Quote, I got conditioned where I can walk up to a fence and lean against it, even if it looks like a prison, end quote. She explained of the ramps and the high rises. But she knew Peter Holston and respected the way he ran a building. A woman at the Parkside office told Dolores, quote, we'll let you know, end quote. But no one ever did. She turned in an application at the Cabrini Row Houses as well. At least she could have a front and back door, a little yard. But the manager there blew her off, telling her to come back Friday and then didn't show himself. Eventually, a representative from the CHA told her to choose somewhere else. She joined a scheduled tour of the rehab public housing across the city, a carload of residents leaving from in front of her building. Dolores liked what she saw at Lawndale Gardens, a row home development on the west side in the Little Village neighborhood. But then she found out it was a block away from the Cook County Jail with its 10,000 inmates. Quote, I can't be close to a jail, end quote, she shouted. Quote, well, excuse me. It would have been like someone who believed in ghosts living alongside a cemetery. She'd have heard the suffering of the inmates at all times. They drove her next to the Dearborn homes on the south side, once a part of the four-mile corridor of public housing that stretched south from the loop along State Street. Dolores was tired of running around, so she took it. Her unit there would be a tiny one-bedroom on the fifth floor of a nine-story building. The CHA set it up so Cheryl could relocate to an apartment on the same floor. And we see there how just the, the lack of care, the lack of empathy, the lack of empathy, the lack of consideration that's going into relocating these people. And I think one of the things that makes it very prevalent and important is that we've learned about Dolores Wilson. We've learned about the things she's experienced here. So it's not just hearing a random individual. We have went through 200 pages of growing with Dolores Wilson and learning how this was her home. And so it just, it adds that, that human dynamic to it when you've learned about this person for the entirety of this book and you see just how quickly and how uh, unempathetically their lives were being uprooted. Even for someone as meticulous as Dolores Wilson, the actual move was confusing. She had so much in her four-bedroom apartment to pack and so little space in her new place to put it. She was told she would be given boxes for all of her belongings. Then on the day of the move, the men from big, quote, oh, end quote, movers said there weren't any more boxes and they had to move her right away. Excuse me. Dolores cried as a lifetime of mementos went into the trash. She lost every letter she ever received. 
She lost her wedding photos and pictures from her trips to Jamaica with Hubert and documents from her time as head of the resident management group. Hubert had received more than 20 certificates and awards for coaching sports teams and running his drum and bugle corps. The Corsairs had won 26 trophies. Dolores had honors from HUD, the Chicago Police, the Water Department. All of that history was gone. Every plaque tossed in a city dump somewhere. Quote, I hate Daly Jr. with a passion, end quote, Dolores would say. She blamed him for doing nothing when he, when he was Cook County State's attorney and the news broke out about John Berg, the Chicago police commander who supervised the torture of more than 100 black men. She blamed Daly for caring more about the land at Cabrini Green than the people who lived there, and she blamed him now for the loss of her belongings. Kelvin Cannon. When Kelvin Cannon's first three-year term as tenant council president ended, the CHA extended it to five years without holding an election. With the foreclosure crisis and the plan for transformation stalled, the agency must have felt justified in ignoring this isolated little fief in the democratic process. Cannon didn't question why two years were added to his term. He just went ahead and did his job the best that he could. He met with developers to go over the constantly reduced scope of their plans. Hundreds of landlords in the city renting to Section 8 families were also losing their buildings to foreclosure, sending their tenants back into the private housing market at a perilous time. Many of these Cabrini families were now calling their old home, asking Cannon for assistance. J.R. Fleming, in his role with the Coalition to Protect Public Housing, sometimes harangued Cannon, accusing him of cozying up to the developers. But all in all, Cannon believed he'd been among the fairest, most loyal tenant council presidents ever at Cabrini Green. He was proud of the work he'd done. Yet in 2010, when Carroll Steele pressed for an election, he decided not to run. With the construction of the first phase of Parkside completed and the rest slowly beginning to resume, Cannon felt it was time to move on. He'd lived in 1230 North Burling since 1983 when he was paroled there. In 2010, the tenants were told the building would be torn down and Cannon moved into an apartment in Parkside of Old Town. It was a two-bedroom with two bathrooms and a balcony that looked onto his empty Burling high-rise. The apartment had a sunny open design, hardwood floors covering the connected, the connected kitchen and living room, and carpeting in the bedrooms. There were stainless steel appliances and a granite countertop, and it was roomy enough for Cannon to put a white bench alongside his couch. He hung his panther paintings. His photograph collection covered the walls, the tabletops, and an upright glass display case, the pictures telling his life story. Cannon in a group shot with his children, or along with his father during a prison visit, or dressed to the nines at the Players' Ball, or standing beside Mayor, standing beside Mayor Daly, or with Reginald and William Blackman when they were teenagers. Cannon's oldest brother stayed in the second bedroom. Cannon's mother and another brother also moved into a Parkside unit. People griped that Cannon had gotten the apartments as payback for his support of the developers in the city, but he dismissed that talk as plain jealousy. He applied for an apartment and qualified just like anyone else. Quote, I can't help that we passed drug tests and background checks and others didn't, end quote, Cannon said. And of course, he looked out for his mother. She was 80. Quote, if I don't help my mother, who will, end quote. For Cannon, living in Parkside was a blessing. Quote, you're supposed to pass that blessing on to the next person, end quote, he said. So we understood why others complained about it. 
By year 10 of the plan for transformation and with almost every high rise gone, only 372 Cabrini Green families have moved into a mixed income development. Those applying were excluded from one of the limited spots if they or a family member couldn't pass a criminal background check, if they had unpaid rent or utility bills, if they or any other adult on the lease failed a drug test, or if they weren't working 30 hours a week or their children weren't enrolled in school. Holston estimated that he accepted one of every five public housing applicants. But it turned out that a small number actually applied. They assumed mixed income wasn't for them. Of the 60 Cabrini families, Holston had asked to complete, excuse me, of the 60 Cabrini families, Holston had asked to compete for 12 units at Northtown Village. Only two saw the process through. He began working with church leaders and local officials to bring out more potential tenants. He hired William Gates, the former prep school basketball star featured in the documentary Hoop Dreams, and a longtime Row House resident. An ordained minister, Gates conducted outreach for Holston in the Cabrini community. Cannon knew some Cabrini families at Parkside who felt the old public housing, for all of its faults, had been more hospitable. In their new mixed-income buildings, they had to undergo regular housekeeping checks, and there were fines for such things as riding a bike on the sidewalk or playing loud music from a car. There was a sense you could get in trouble just for being yourself. When anyone on a public housing lease did mess up, and he or she was arrested, even for a misdemeanor, if the arrest didn't lead to a conviction, the entire family could be evicted. Even if the arrest didn't lead to a conviction, the entire family could be evicted. Many times the CHA struck a deal with the leaseholder, saying she could stay only if the arrested family member was barred from ever setting foot in the apartment. You might have felt like you won the lottery when you got into Parkside, but now you had to choose between your daughter, who was caught smoking weed, and a roof over your head. In Candace building, you smell weed coming from some of the condo owners' apartments. They weren't drug tested. They kept dogs and barbecue, but public housing families weren't allowed to do either. Cannon didn't want a dog himself, and he didn't mind the drug test or the inspections. He believed rules were necessary to keep order, and his market-rate neighbors had paid for certain privileges. Different laws for different tenants, though, didn't do much for fostering, quote, productive neighboring, end quote. The public housing families in the new buildings weren't allowed to form tenant councils, but the owners had their condo associations, and they set the rules that affected everyone. In any condo building in the city, owners were going to be wary of large numbers of renters. What up, what up, what up? Renters didn't have savings tied up in the property and had no financial stake in the building's future. That wariness was even greater at Parkside, since the renters paid only a small subsidized rent. Imagining himself an ambassador, Cannon took it upon himself to bridge that divide greeting what he called his, quote, European, end quote, neighbors. He'd say, quote, good morning, end quote, and, quote, good evening, end quote. Sometimes people ignored him, but if he saw them later in the Seward Park field house or the stores across Division Street, they smiled with the flash of recognition. That was the start. Occasionally, people in the building responded by welcoming him to the neighborhood, not considering that they were new and he'd been there for close to 50 years. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And I think one of the things that's interesting is seeing the the opposing positions that Annie Ricks and that 
Kelvin Cannon had, or not any Rick, excuse me, I don't, Dolores Wilson, that Dolores Wilson and that Kelvin Cannon had, and even that JR and Kelvin Cannon had. And one of the things that, and again, part of how all of these things work when it comes to the issues that this is, issues that exist in our society is that there are a few black people who will slip through the cracks in the sense of they will be able to achieve what the masses of black people can't. Whether that happens from education, whether that happens from networking or knowing certain people, whether that happens from who their family is. And so we see that for Kelvin Cannon, he has pictures with Mayor Daly. You know, he was he he formed a connection and a, a, a positive relationship with the people who were benefiting from the high risers being torn down. And so it's not surprising that because of that proximity to them, he also benefited in ways. And even though he may be okay with the idea for him that it's different rules for different neighbors, that is not equality. That is not equity. That's not what this country is supposed to be value or it's not it's supposed to value. And so that's a hypocrisy. You know, you can't live in a building where you're governed differently from your neighbors, but you live in a city where everybody's equal. Or you live in a country where everybody's equal. Uh, and so one of the other things that stands out as well to me is the way in which Dolores was treated the her all of her these pictures all of these things that she had thrown in the trash this woman who had been saintly in throughout this whole book that when it was time to get her moved out and when it was time to get her to destroy her home you know she was not treated special you know she was not cared about or empathized about and and she was the throughout the reading of this book she's one of the people that has been the most empathetic and and so Again, it's these institutions that exist are inhumane, they're unempathetic, and they've been that way historically. And so and, and I implore people to, as you hear about these things happening with in Chicago, to look into the way that these things have happened in the cities that you're from, the states that you're from. And I think we might be able to knock this chapter out. Okay, maybe not. I don't know. But we're going to keep going, though. Annie Ricks. In November 2010, the woman from the Chicago Housing Authority phoned again, pleading, begging Annie Ricks to please move somewhere. She told Ricks it wasn't safe to live alone like that in the projects. 15 stories, 134 units, the entire 1230 North Berlin building, a pillar of darkness, saved for seven remaining families. At night, the glow from Ricks' window in the apartment 1108 looked like the distant beacon of a lighthouse. With a laugh, Ricks told the official to let her be. She lived at Cabrini Green for 21 years, and she was going to enjoy her Thanksgiving at home. Quote, you have to find a new home, Miss Ricks, end quote. Quote, no, I don't. I can, st I can stay in 1230 North Burling forever, end quote. One of the tenant reps in the building told Ricks, quote, I'm not going until you go, end quote. But then he left for the row houses. Quote, he ran like a chicken with his head cut off, end quote, Annie said. 
When the moving trucks came for the last seven, seven families, only Ricks and a man on the lower floor refused to leave. Then he relented, taking an apartment assigned to him. By that wintry fall, Cabrini's green... Tw- excuse me, excuse me, sorry about that. By that wintry fall, Cabrini Green's 22 other towers had each been shuttered. Ricks was the last tenant of all the Cabrini Green high-rises. She was also the last remaining resident of any gallery-style public housing high-rise in Chicago. Every tower had been closed. Tens of thousands of families packed up and moved elsewhere. She'd outlasted them all. At 54, Ricks was a grandmother nearly 40 times over. She lost all her teeth except for two on the bottom, and her black hair was streaked with white. Quote, I'm the last woman standing, end quote, she liked to proclaim. A CHA relocation specialist had taken Ricks to see Lawndale Gardens, not far from where she grew up on the west side. But she had memories of coming home from Harrison High School and running from the Mexican and Puerto Rican students who threatened to beat her up. She didn't want that for her children or grandchildren. She went to check out the Cabrini Row houses as well. Quote, doesn't this area seem right to you, Miss Riggs? End quote. A housing official asked her. It didn't. Of the 600 homes there, just 150 of them, a, silver, a sliver along Cambridge Avenue, have been rehabbed. The other 450 have been cleared of residents in 2008 and left to sit even though the plan for transformation promised that the entire area would be fixed up and repopulated. Column after column of the barrack-style homes remained empty, their doors and first-floor windows covered in boards, their postage stamp gardens going to field, the perimeters blocked off with chain-link fencing, like some military outposts long after the soldiers left for home. Annie knew, too, that the boys in the row houses were warring with the young guys from the, quote, orange doors, end quote, the Evergreen Terrace Apartments on Sedgwick, north of Division Street. Two of her former students have been shot on Cambridge. A pro bono lawyer suggested that Ricks agree to move into the best of the replacement homes being offered, but she decided she wouldn't accept anything less than a four-bedroom apartment which was, with which she was eligible for. She wasn't illegal in her apartment. She paid her rent on time. No one caught her with drugs or guns. So how could the CHA just assign her a new apartment? There were six people on her lease, three of her children, Reggie, Rose, and Raekwon, two of her grandkids, and herself. For 20 years, Ricks had lived in a four-bedroom in a neighboring high-rise, 660 West Division. Then in 2008, when that building was about to be torn down, movers with the housing authority carried out all her belongings and set her up in 1230 North Burley. In her Burling apartment, she had five bedrooms and a big living room with a closet that fit an air mattress for whenever another family member needed to spend the night. She bought a brand new washing machine from Home Depot less than a year before, thinking she'd be able to use it in her apartment for years to come. If she had to move, she wanted a unit that also had a washing machine hookup. Quote, why lie and say they don't have a four-bedroom at the CHA? End quote, she complained, citing a litany of dates and detailed conversations she'd had with housing officials. Quote, I know they have a four-bedroom. They have so many four-bedrooms over there, end quote. She cut herself short, a look of surprise giving way to a wide, closed-mouth smile, quote, but I can't never be mad, end quote. Alone in 1230 North Burling, she decided to turn the solitude into a celebration. 
In her apartment, she cranked the music all the way up. Quote, power and praise, end quote, on AM 1390. No one else was left in the building to complain. Her daughter Rose and several of her grandchildren jumped roped in the apartment. The younger ones hula hooped and pogo sticked. Riggs fired up the grill and barbecued on the open air gallery. An icy gale sliced through the fencing, 11 stories high, but she repeated to anyone who would listen that she didn't mind one bit. As much as Riggs professed her love for living alone in 1230 North Berlin, it took its toll. One Sunday, she returned from church to find a river gushing outside her apartment. She grabbed a broom and attacked the water, whisking it off the ramp and elevator. She traced the source into the vacant apartment next to hers, the stream leading into one of the bathrooms. A bathtub had been stopped up, the taps turned on full blast. Quote, sabotage, end quote, she cursed. Now they were trying to flood her out. And it wasn't easy clambering up the stairwells, hiking those 11 stories. She wasn't young like she used to be, and the elevators didn't always work. The elevator was often broke in 660 West Division, but there she lived on the fifth floor and could drop in and see family members on the way up. At 1230 North Burling, nobody else was left to invite her in for a visit. On December 1st, 2010, the CHA took Ricks to court, seeking an emergency injunction to close her building. The agency argued that it was not only absurd, but also an undue financial burden to keep the heat on in a 15-story high-rise with just a single unit occupied. A federal judge agreed. Ricks had to leave within 10 days. Annie said she would move if she could go across the street into Parkside of Old Town. But the housing authority deemed it unfair for the Ricks family to skip ahead of the many Cabrini residents on the Parkside waiting list. And maybe the agency considered Annie Riggs too obstinate, too intractable for the delicate balance of mixed income living. They gave her a unit seven miles south in Wentworth Gardens, a low rise public housing development of 422 units sandwiched between the 14 lanes of the Dan Ryan Expressway and the fence parking lots for the White Sox baseball stadium. When she toured Wentworth earlier that fall, she saw teenagers and young men selling drugs out in the open. She didn't know these young men. At Cabrini, she had known all the boys who lingered outside her high-rise. She likely helped raise them in the after-school program she ran or in the classrooms in which she worked as a teacher's aide. She'd probably shared meals with them or their families. Her lawyer explained to the judge that Ricks was afraid to live at Wentworth Gardens. But the judge said drugs were being sold all over Chicago. That was that. Quote, I had to go. End quote, she conceded, quote, either that or be homeless, end quote. On the morning of her move out of Cabrini Green, December 9, 2010, Ricks rose early to take her bath. It was 21 years almost to the day since she'd walked there in a snowstorm. As she readied herself, Ricks pulled her hair back into a sprig of a ponytail. She put on a white collar shirt with gray stripes and a caramel colored leather coat. Annie and her children had been up most of the night finishing the packing. On the way out of the building for the last time, Rick stuck her head into the management office. Kenneth Hammond and a couple of other tenant representatives were in there. Quote, hey y'all, I'm leaving, end quote, she said. She passed by the building's janitors gathered on the ground floor. Her new apartment in Wentworth Garden didn't have a laundry hookup. She'd given away her new washing machine to a janitor who looked out for her. He and his brother had already carted it off. Quote, I'ma miss you. End quote, Riggs told him, quote, I'll miss you too, end quote, he said. 
As it had the day she arrived at Cabrini Green, snow had fallen. But this time the reporters really did show up to chronicle her move. They were there from ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, WGN, The Tribune, The Sun-Times, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal. Quote, an inglorious end to an infamous era, end quote, as one of the newspapers put it. Another described Cabrini Green as, quote, the housing development that came to symbolize the squandered hope of them all, end quote. The reporters jostled around the last high-rise tenants of what had been the cities and really the countries and the world's most iconic public housing complex. Rose Ricks, then 17, wrote a suitcase with the Route 66 sticker on it. She said, quote, I've been here basically my whole life. Like it's hard leaving when you've got so much memories of it. You knew everyone. You felt safe, end quote. Men from big, quote, oh, end quote, movers carried out most of the belongings, but Annie didn't trust them with her most prized possessions. Her son Deontay lugged a cardboard box filled with the trophies he and his siblings had won for basketball tournaments and perfect attendance, and the one that he took home for being valedictorian of the school that was still there just an empty field away. Sheila had been given a new name and a makeover, and it reopened the year before, serving only those students who tested in, ranked it among the best elementaries in the entire state. Ch children no longer walked a few hundred feet to get there, but arrived by car and school bus. Deontay stopped outside the high-rise. He wanted people to understand that Cabrini Green was more complicated than they thought. There was the myth of the place as something terrifying. You said you were from Cabrini Green, and people recoiled as if you had a deadly disease they might catch. But living at Cabrini, the Riggs family had experienced the fullness of it. They also had fun there. Quote, there was more good than bad, end quote, he tried to explain. When the trophies were stowed and the furniture loaded onto a truck, Annie Riggs ducked into a sedan, the same off-white color as her high-rise. The car spun its wheels on the snow, gained traction, and she was gone. That brings us to that brings us to the end of chapter fifteen. To the end of chapter fifteen of High Rises by Ben Austin. And I think that one of the things that stands out there is we've seen that the school is the is the cycle of the 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 cycle of the education system. We've seen that when Cabrini Green was built and a bunch of black people started going to the schools that was in the area, that resources were pulled from the school, funding was pulled from the school, intern uh, programs and things like that was pulled from the school and the uh, peep the demographics of the school became completely uh not completely black but overwhelmingly black. And then We've seen once Cabrini Green now has been torn down and is no longer there and it's a new demographic in the neighborhood, how the the value of the education is now increasing and changing. And you can they they gave they refurbished it and they made the school look better and they tested out for students to come there. And, you know, and so you just you see this this cycle of oppression, the cycle of exploitation, the cycle of of discrimination. And it explains to you why we have things like 
the violence that exists in a city like Chicago. And again, you can replicate this out to your own city by finding out the specifics and how this happened in your own city, because this is an American way of doing things. And uh, I would encourage people as well to read the book, The Color of Law. That was the first book that I read that really opened up my eyes to the issue of housing and how these things happen. And then even uh, Miss Ricks, when she was being when she had to move into a new a neighborhood, a new area, she had to move into a place she didn't feel safe in. You know, like the psychological trauma done to all these people who felt safe somewhere, even if other people might not have felt safe there, that was home to them. You know, they weren't being moved to separate places. They were mo being moved to places that, if not just as violent, were more violent. And there, they didn't know the characters that were perpetuating the violence. And, and so those are all just things that stand out to me. And we're about about finished with this book probably got about three or four more episodes left and then we'll do a recap and move on to the next next piece of literature all right share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on and be on the lookout for tomorrow's episode